BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. And from The Athletic, hello to Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, hi to Michael Normanson. Hello. If you want to get in touch with us, we have a new Twitter account for the show. At The Phil Hay Show is what you need to look out for. You can subscribe right now to The Athletic for a special price of three ninety nine a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub where you get all that great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all our podcasts and all The Athletic ones. We'll get into some of the stuff that you've done this week, Phil, because there's some really interesting stuff in there. And head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you want to take advantage of that 40% discount. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. So yeah, a couple of the things that you have been writing about this week, Phil. The, number one, the plane crash. And number two, the survey that The Athletic have done about fan happiness. So plane crash I found really, really interesting. It's something we've spoken before to Bryn Law about and an experience that's probably been underrepresented, I guess, to a certain extent. I'd agree with that. It reminded me a little bit of the deaths in Istanbul in that it seems to have been largely forgotten outside of Leeds. And actually, quite a lot of people who were replying to me on Twitter, Leeds fans were saying, I'd never heard of this or I'd, you know, I, I had completely forgotten about it. And Brim was one of the people I, I spoke to for the piece. I got in touch with um, Robert Molinar and Ian Hart and Peter Ridsdale as well. And, and also the pilot who landed the plane, John Hackett. Um, he's into his 80s now, but was pretty much the, the hero of the hour. And there was uh, some chatter afterwards he called it from armchair pilots about whether he should have followed protocol by going up into the air and and letting the engine starve itself of oxygen but he took the view that once it exploded a few seconds after takeoff that the the wing might disintegrate and if it did when they were in the air then it would be absolutely catastrophic and certainly the players in Ridsdale felt that he'd saved everybody's life by deciding to land rather than to to keep flying. One of the things Bryn said to me was people seem to have the impression that this was a bit of an aborted takeoff that it was a takeoff that didn't quite happen and we sort of trundled onto the grass and and that was that. But actually, you know, for the 27 seconds that they were in the air, he was with Norman Hunter. They'd be, they were the only, only journalists, or he was the only journalist and, and Hunter was there as a pundit for the, the game at West Ham, which had, had finished a, a couple of hours earlier. He said for those 27 seconds, you know, they were sitting with their heads between their knees doing the, the brace position and he and he genuinely thought he was going to die. And, and Peter Ridsdale said the same and I think the players had that, that same sensation and that same feeling of, of panic. And I think because all 44 people on board were able to walk off the plane and, and were able to, to get off safely and there, there were amazingly no fatalities and, and no serious injuries, it came to be seen as a, a bit of a kind of trivial or, or passing accident um, that, that wasn't given much more thought. But actually, when you'd heard the story of how it exploded and what happened and the, the window next to Peter Ridsdale melting onto his blazer and, and everything else you realise that they were extremely lucky. You know, extremely lucky to to come out of that and that none of them can really remember the game at West Ham, which was dismal. I mean, Leeds were appalling that night and mistake after mistake and, and lost 3-0. But Molinar said to me, 
I couldn't tell you anything about that game because I've never thought about it since. You know, I've thought about the plane crash a lot, but the game itself, as soon as that went on, you just forgot about it completely. You know, it reminds me of my granddad. Um, older people may remember it was in the mid 80s, I think it was. Uh, a plane overshot the, the end of the runway at um, Leeds Bradford Airport. And it was a TriStar, the one with the three engines, the one at the back. And my granddad got off that plane and uh, he came down the slide. And as we picked him up in the terminal afterwards, he just said, that's it for old Billy. <laughs> and he, he never got on a plane again. Well, the players kind of forced themselves to get onto planes. Molinar said he, he deliberately took a similar jet back over to Holland to try and convince himself that actually uh, incidents like that are extremely rare and you, you're very, very safe uh, in a plane. Um, but it was touch and go. And, and as I say, that there is professional opinion that Hackett should have carried on flying the plane and should have taken it up and, and tried to to starve the, the engine of oxygen. But I, I went back through the air investigation report afterwards and it did say that it was, you know, it was basically his discretion at that point. The engine exploded so quickly after takeoff, I think three or four seconds, that it was essentially his call. And he decided that rather than taking off midway down the runway, because you have very long runways at Stansted and this was a small jet that didn't need all, all 12,000 feet, um, he decided to use the whole thing, and because he did, he he had room at the end of it to touch down again, which which meant they were they were able to land. But they they were extremely fortunate, and and as I say, I think Bryn was right, and I I felt this as I got towards the end of of the the interviews and and started writing it. It it was far more serious than it it was portrayed, and I think far more serious than it's been remembered. And yeah, they they were very very fortunate to get out of that. If you were on board, exactly, it's very very serious to you, then, isn't it? I mean, I guess you don't know what that situation feels like and, until you're in it. On to another thing that you've written about this week, which was the fan survey. And it's it's an athletic-wide thing, isn't it, of fans uh, throughout the Premier League. And the long and short of it is Leeds United fans very happy. You're very happy, Michael, I guess, as a, as a pessimist. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think everything's going as well as could have been hoped, to be honest. So it's something like 97, 98% happiness it was, Phil? Yes. The slight anomaly in there was that we asked, how happy are you with you know your club's performances this season? So when it came to... Bielsa, do you want Bielsa to stay on next season? It was not far off 100% yes. Similar results for things like, is the club well run? And, you know, do your team play entertaining football? So so pretty much what you would have expected. When people were asked if they were happy with the club's performances this season, Leeds came in at 54.83%, which as people have been saying on Twitter this morning, is pretty low for a promoted club who have played the way they've played and are mid-table and are, are definitely staying up. I can only assume that in the main, 100% of people are happy or, or satisfied with how this has gone. But the reason it's dropped to 54% must be because people have issues with the number of goals that have been conceded, the problems at set pieces, other little things that are niggling at them and are kind of turning them into slight perfectionists. I'm very, very surprised that that isn't up in the 80%, 90%. I, mm. I find it difficult to imagine that people can pick much fault with this squad I think he's got everything possible out of this group of players. I, I don't think Leeds could have performed any better. And I know we could pick over set pieces again and the problems at set pieces are, are evident and, and don't seem to be going away. But you are still talking about a side who have come out of the, the championship and competed incredibly well. The only reason I can think it's as low as it is is that it's almost people saying, this isn't it though. Like, are you happy with the performance this season? I'm happy. With, I think people are happy with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Almost people are answering it as not that I'm happy with it this season. Am I happy with this as an ongoing position for Leeds United? Is the only way I can think people yeah, have it, interpreted it because mid table yeah. is fine this year, but two or three years down the line, mid table 
don't get thinking this is acceptable to I, us. I, I like that to a certain extent, the fact that we kind of set in the bar high for ourselves. I can only is think that, as well, do you think it's something to do with maybe the post-promotion bounce as well, in that we had such a good run in towards the end and looked basically, I don't know, infallible almost in that final run in, even though we had the Barnsley hiccup, but history's going to make it look like a hell of a good run. But then to start losing quite a lot of games versus where we finished last season, do you think maybe that's part of it? Perhaps, and, and perhaps it's down also to the fact that there'd be no supporters in the ground, so you haven't been able to feel the games in, in the way that you would have felt them if you'd had packed a packed Ellen Road and, and packed a weigh-in, uh, weigh-ins through this season as well. Michael might well be right with that. It might well be an, an observation that, yes, it's fine first time round, but actually you aspire to more. I, I agree with you that it's good to be aspirational and it's good to be ambitious. And I think Grad Razani has, has said himself, and so did um, Prag Marathi after the, the latest 49ers investment, that ideally the next step for them, you know, and not immediately, but three years, five years would be European qualifications. So, you know, regularly around the, the Europa League spots. I think people have to, as well as being ambitious, be realistic about how difficult it is to start rubbing shoulders and interfering with the teams who are right at the very top of the league because at that level it's not purely about income or turnover at that level it does become about the weight of funding that you have behind you and with somebody like Abramovich or the the power of and the the wealth of Abu Dhabi you're on a completely different level to Leeds no matter and in this current setup no matter what Leeds try to do with the capacity of Elland Road and with their commercial interests it's almost impossible to start competing and and you know Manchester United have been a commercial beast for years and years and and are way out in front or have been way out in front in that sense so there's definitely more to be had from Leeds I do think they will come to a point where they do hit a ceiling because most divisions across Europe seem to have a ceiling for all but the, the very, very biggest or, or wealthiest of clubs. But that might be right. That might be why this is down at 54%, because people are saying, yeah, this has been satisfactory. Yeah, I've enjoyed this. Yeah, this has been good. But actually, as we move forward into next year, I'd, I'd expect a little bit more. We've turned today's show over to you. Question and answer. You can throw questions at Phil. I'm delighted, particularly on a personal level, uh, for the, the opening question is everything I hoped and dreamed it would be. Hi lads, just wanted to ask a question about Rodrigo de Paul. Obviously, reports today. I'm talking on Tuesday here, uh, saying that you know he's choosing Leeds over anyone else. After all the banter we've seen on Twitter, is this actually finally going to happen? Hey up, Phil. What's the air word on Rodrigo de Paul? Give me some good news. Hi Phil. I'm sure uh, Michael Normerson has the inside scoop on this story as he is currently camped out in a tent outside his house. But um, but I was just wondering if there is any truth to the Rodrigo de Paul rumours. Thanks. Rodrigo de Paul to Leeds, talk to me. Are these your family members phoning in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when there's one person in there crediting Michael with... Um, stalking Rodrigo de Paul. It's not, it's me. It's not, it's definitely Yeah, don't. I'm the one who's hiding out in the bushes dressed up like a commando. I, for my part, and this probably applies to you as well, Dan, I have never seen him play a full no. 90 minutes. <laughs> I've seen, but, I've watched some without, YouTube clips. But without doubt, he is the answer. Yes. There is a is an element of that. The peculiar thing with this last summer was that when the story first broke, and I think it was the Telegraph who ran it first to say that um, that Leeds were interested in, in looking, looking at him, there seemed to be an assumption that he'd signed. You know, there seemed to be an assumption that, that this was definitely happening and, and he'd be next through the door. And part of the reason for that was probably that Leeds had just spent £27 million on Rodrigo from Valencia. And it was clear that they were going big and, and it felt as if nothing within reason was off limits. You know, if, if Rodrigo was 
attainable, then then if they had the money, there was no reason why Rodrigo de Paul um, wouldn't be. The problem was that it never got anywhere close to being a done deal. They were never at a stage leads of almost agreeing a fee, let alone actually agreeing a fee. In the end, they didn't make much effort on it. And as various people have told us, he, he wasn't really a player that they were they were after. There was clearly a question asked. There was clearly some discussion about it. The more I've heard about it, the more it sounds as if Rodrigo de Paul was pushed Leeds way by somebody rather than Leeds actively going in and asking the question about him. But it has to be said that in, in the 12 months since, it's never gone away this. And it's been a constant source of discussion it's been a constant source of reports in Italy uh, in particular. And it still is that name that keeps doing the rounds. And it's odd because it's got to the stage now where it's become a little bit of an, an obsession. And, and he, as I said, has almost become, in, in a pool of European midfielders which stretches to hundreds, he has become the answer and the player that, that some people seem absolutely desperate to sign. And I'm still not convinced that it's going to happen. It is predicated ultimately on Bielsa wanting him, isn't it? And before that is the finance. And when we spoke to Angus Kinnear in the summer and we were laughing about this this whole point of the, the, the hysteria that had grown up around Rodrigo de Paul and a lot of it came from when he replied to that tweet that I just speculatively put out there. I cast a fishing line and amazingly got a little nibble from him. But Angus was sort of saying, well, yeah, we made a tentative inquiry as you do with hundreds of players across Europe and it never went beyond that because the price was presumably too high at a time when, you know, they'd already committed that amount of money to Rodrigo. He is a very good player. We should say that. He's a really creative player. He's he's very, very skillful midfielder. That, and, it feels and, like there's a bot coming. And well, he falls into as well, into that area, one of the areas that Leeds will be looking at. So that kind of 8-10 hybrid that Bielsa likes, you know, a, a, the sort of player that, that Matthias Cleek has become perhaps with slightly more creativity than than Cleek has, um, they they will try to do something there. And and he he sort of ticks the box in the sense that he's got got the right attributes. But there are plenty of other high-quality midfielders out there in Europe. I mean, they've they've been linked with um, Romain Favre at um, Stab Brest, very, very good midfielder. Somebody like Coop Miners at, at Altmar, very, very good midfielder. It doesn't feel to me like it needs to be Rodrigo de Paul or bust. But it's become a little bit like that because this has been spoken about so much and because it's it persists. I mean, if they don't do him in this window, coming up this summer window, and from what I'm told, they're looking at other players, I don't think he would be the player that they want to bring in if they can get exactly who they want. But I'm loath to say that it 100% won't happen because you never say never, do you? <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd, I'd rather that this wasn't dug up in three months' time and people said, ah, there you go, you see. Um, it was It was kind of always on the cards. But, it is odd the way in which this one is just stuck and the attention that's been paid to it. And as I say, I, I understand that people look at him and, and say that, that he's talented and, and think that he would fit nicely. But I think there are plenty of other midfielders out there who would fit nicely too. Why is there so much noise around it? The, the interviews this week suggesting that he's almost choosing leads over other people. And it, and the fact that he's replying to Dan's tweets, it's like the, it feels like almost a social media age equivalent of when Odin Wingy drove to the training it, it, ground. It's kind of like, I'm here if you want me. I'm just... I, I think that's a really good comparison. I, I think in the last window, the last summer window, there was an element of desperation in some of what he was doing because he could sense that the bigger moves that were being talked about and there were, there were links to Juventus and there have been links to Liverpool recently as well, they weren't going to happen at that point. And there's always a shot window in which you feel like your value's at its peak and which you feel like you should be you should be getting a pretty lucrative move 
to a more elite club with no disrespect to Udinese. I mean, they know that themselves, that, that at some point they will almost certainly sell him to a bigger side. But I think that's what it is. I, I think there is a, an element of desperation there and probably a bit of uncertainty about what's going to materialise in, in the window. You know, what, what are his options going to be? Is anybody going to meet his, his asking price? How is it How is it going to develop? But I do find, I mean, I mean, you said there that you haven't watched him over 90 minutes. And you'll be aware of another midfielder that Leeds have been linked with constantly, a guy called Eric Pulga at Fiorentina. And to read some of the coverage in the, the local press in Florence, it was as if that deal was done or as good as done. They were talking about fees being agreed. They were talking about Pulga saying his goodbyes, you know, basically getting ready to go on the plane. And then you would speak to Leeds and Leeds would say, we're not signing this guy. He's not on our list. And it would all fade away. And, and what I found funny was I remember somebody on Twitter saying to me, Pulgar would be perfect for us. And I replied and I said, I have to be honest, I haven't seen very much of him. You know, I've watched a few clips and everything else, but I can't pretend to know enough about Pulgar to say he'll be a perfect fit um, under Bielsa. You know, how much have, have you seen of him? And this guy said to me, well, I haven't seen anything of him, but from what I've read, <laughs> he sounds like he'd, he'd be ideal. And it's not to pretend that Pulgar isn't a, a really good high calibre midfielder. He definitely is. But it comes back to what you said, right at the beginning of this does he fit under Bielsa and, and I know somebody who's done a lot of analysis of Rodrigo de Paul and in amongst the, the ability and the talent and, and the flair they consider him to be somebody who takes a lot of risks and someone who's, who's quite prone to, to losing possession and they were questioning they said you know it might be that, that Bielsa likes him and, and he fits but they were questioning whether he would genuinely fit into a Bielsa side which to the naked eye can look like it's a lot of the football's off the cuff or um, is imaginative but actually a lot of it's heavily programmed and, and Bielsa Bielsa likes good football likes quality football but he likes players to be consistent in the way that they apply themselves and in the, the things that they do so I'm still erring on the side which says this one will not happen but I suspect it's not the last time I'm going to be asked about him not if um, I've got anything to do with it I will well, I will persist with that man <laughs> can we can we have a deal that if it doesn't happen in this window we never mention him ever again yeah fair enough but if it does happen you have to concede it's the ultimate payoff of all time. Yes, absolutely. And you're going to take credit for that tweet, aren't you? You should really get a, an agent's fee for it, I think, as well. Get yeah. a couple of percent on the fee or something. I'd be fine with that. If they want to send a percentage my way, I'd be willing to accept it. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California... And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Phil, now that we're safe, yes, I said it. Do you think we'll get a chance to see players like Drama, Somerville, Geldart, Greenwood uh, in the running to the end of the season? Hi, folks. I was just wondering, um, what's Phil's take on uh, Leif Davis and more so what's the club's take on it? Because it seems strange to me that we've had so many troubles in one position and we've got this, you know, raring youngster who I think we last saw in a Premier League match as he, when he came on as a sub at Man City. Hi, Phil, Dan and Michael. Does Phil know if Leeds have any plans to go down the route of a loan manager? given that we've got a lot of young players out on loan. Cheers. So to address some of those points then, Phil, do you think we're going to see some of the kids this season? With a, a different manager, I would have said probably yes. 
or at least I think there would have been a, a higher chance of that, that that you might try and introduce some of them and, and test them properly. But it's never really been Bielsa's mindset to, to work like that, to field a, a young team, simply to blood them and to give them a chance to play. I mean, this kind of goes back to the discussion we had with them about Robbie Gotts when Gotts went through 35 games as an unused substitute and you got to the point of thinking, is he ever going to play? Is he ever going to get his get his debut? And you'd look at games that Leeds had won comfortably and, and you would think that in different circumstances and, and with other coaches, he might be given five minutes, he might be given 10 minutes just to, to give him a, a feel of, of that game. But Bielsa would always say, the structure of the games wasn't right for him. You know, he wasn't the player that I needed to bring off the bench. And I think more significantly, I don't want to be seen to be just giving him a debut for the sake of giving him a debut. You know, he'll play if if I need him to play. I mean, I'm I'm with everybody else in that I would like to see Gilhart get a chance. I'd like to see Greenwood get a chance. Drammy has been incredibly impressive for the under-23s. So as Somerville, you've got Charlie Creswell, in their really, really strong crop of, of 23s at the moment. But the slight problem is that you've got a really strong crop of first-team players as well. And Bielsa always pays a lot of attention to the, the integrity of various competitions and, and I think would be wary of fielding what some people might think of as a, a weakened lineup because of the fact that although Leeds are mid-table and safe, um, or, or effectively safe, there are other teams in the division who still have plenty riding on on the games that are left, and you know we're about to run into three matches against Manchester City, Man United, Liverpool, others further down the table again who are going to play games against Leeds, which could be critical for them when it comes to survival. And I I just don't get the feeling that it's his way at all to suddenly decide on a whim. Do you know what I'm going to play a load of of twenty threes? Slightly different, it seems to be in cup games. You know we we've seen away at Crawley, and we've seen in, in other fixtures in, in the League Cup as well, that he is far more willing to do that. But when it comes to actual league matches, it feels as if he will consistently play his strongest lineup because he doesn't think there's any justification not to. He doesn't strike me as the type of manager who, let's you know, imagine we get to a dead rubber at the end of the season with West Brom already down, we're already safe, that even then he would let the shackles off and suddenly decide to play Gellhart. He does feel like he gets very intensely involved in every game. He does. I guess the one that jumps out was Derby away last season, uh, which was the the first dead rubber after Leeds won promotion and, and were confirmed as champions. And it was a completely different lineup, and that was a concerted decision. I suspect it had something to do with the fact that for the two days beforehand they'd been letting their hair down, um, and there were probably people with with slightly sore heads. But that was, you know, that was one occasion when it was a case of sweep the, the first team away. And play a younger side, play what people could have called a, a weakened side. But as it turned out, Leeds won that comprehensively anyway, so it didn't matter. But then when you ran on to the Charlton game the following week when they actually lifted the title, again, it was a very, very strong team. You know, there was no question of testing players out. There was no question of really blooding anybody. It, it was his side, as his best side as, as he saw it, give or take. So no, I, I think you're right. I think even if on the last day against West Brom, there's nothing to play for. It's not to say that you might not see Gilhart get 10 minutes off the bench, you know, if, if he feels like that's the way it's it's going. But genuinely, if, if we reach the end of the season and none of these players have had much of a chance, don't be surprised. It does feel a little bit like the under-23s as it stands at the minute are uh, being lined up for integration more next season. Like we might see them in the early rounds of the League Cup maybe uh, at the start of next year. When they were signing players like Drammy, for example, they were talking about the possibility that he might be a longer-term successor to somebody like Luke Ayling. So 
Ailing is coming up towards the age of 30, you know, starting to move into the, not the last stages of his career, but he's advanced now in, in years. Whereas Drammy is very young and because of the talent he has, and he has looked extremely good in the under-23s games, I think they hope that there might be a Premier League right back there who they've signed for a pretty small fee from Fulham and who ultimately will be worth an awful lot more further down the lane. And, and likewise with others in the team as well, Gelhart is, I think, going to prove an absolute steal at the, the sort of 700000 to to a million that they'll pay for him in the end. And the only reason they got him that cheap was because Wigan were in administration and were pretty much taking money for anyone they could get. But Bielsa got involved in the Zoom calls that tied that one up. Leicester were, were very interested in Gelhart too. And it tells you that they knew what they were saying and they knew that he was a big talent and they knew that he was he was worth having. But again, he's extremely young and he's got a, a lot of time in front of him. And Bamford is Bielsa's first choice centre forward and is, is going to remain in that position for the, the time being. And it's difficult really because, you know, over the course of the season, I've had people ask me, why isn't Gelhard being involved? You know, why isn't he getting a chance? Dramy, Creswell, Somerville, Greenwood. And on top of that, you've got Huggins, you've got um, Jenkins and, and others. If all these players are in the first team squad, what is happening to the players who are already in the first team squad? What What are you doing with them? And, it's not possible to blood everybody. It's not possible to, or, or it's not sensible to keep the team rotating so that under-23s get minutes here or there. You've got to push them when they're ready and you've got to push them when you feel like you need them. But as we've seen over three years, Bielsa does tend to rely on a pretty small core of what he sees as a, a first eleven. There's a fairly small core of players that he depends on and, and leans on week to week. And it doesn't feel like that's changed a great deal. What of Leif Davis then? It feels like he's stagnated a little bit. I still think he's prominent and I still think he's valued and, and he's been good for the, the 23s in patches as well. There, there was an interesting comment from Calvin Phillips about him a little while ago now where he was he was talking about Davis just having to switch on a little bit more or to, to understand um, a bit more about, um, about what professional football was, how you had to look after yourself. I forget the exact quote, but that seemed to be what he, he was getting at. And I guess you would say that given that left back again has been in a position that hasn't really picked itself through this season. You you might have expected Davis to come into the team. But again, Bielsa seems to be happy with Alioski. He seems to trust Alioski. He, he plays him regularly. And even though Alioski is going, or seems to be going at the end of this season, no sign yet of him taking up this this contract offer from Leeds. He's still in the starting lineup. I, I think the well, probability will, will play against Sheffield United at the weekend. So I think Davis, like others, is just going to have to be patient and is going to have to wait his turn. And I think the, the sort of clamour for the 23s to break through has to be tempered by the fact that this squad are mid-table in the Premier League first season back and the performance levels are almost too high for 23s to be to be breaking in. And I, I know it looks now as if with a bunch of dead rubbers from Leeds' point of view coming up, it would be a time to, to throw them in. But it, it just doesn't seem to be Bielsa's way. In terms of a loan manager, then, that's one of the questions that was asked. Does it feel to you a little bit too soon to be looking at something like that? Because we're not exactly the, the Chelsea farm of producing uh, loads of landfill footballers, are we? It's it's still a very tight unit. They did have a, a loans manager, they, a guy called Simona Farina, and I think it was 2019 he was appointed. But I, I believe he left not so long ago now, and I, I'm not entirely sure if, if he's been replaced. A lot of clubs do have loan managers but then a lot of clubs have far more players out on loan than than Leeds do and it's always been the case under Bielsa and it still feels like the case under Bielsa that the under 23s that he values most and the under 23s that he he thinks are closest to the first team are the ones that he wants to keep 
at the club, irrespective of whether they're going to play and whether they're actually going to get any minutes, he still doesn't seem inclined to let them go. I think he thinks that them training and, and being around the first team is far more valuable to them than going out and playing in, in League One or League Two. And and the players who who have gone out, I'm thinking particularly, you know, Robbie Gotts, who I did a piece with recently, uh, Alfie McCalmont, who's at Oldham. I think you have to ask the question of how likely it is now that they're going to figure at Leeds going forward from here. I, I certainly got the impression with, with Robbie when I spoke to him that he isn't sure. He's not sure how it's going to go for him when pre-season comes around. I think in his head he, he expects to go back to Leeds and to, to compete again. But it, w- it will depend entirely on where Bielsa sees him in, in the pecking order. And likewise, McCalmont. I mean, Bielsa spent a huge amount of time watching McCalmont to try and decide whether or not he saw him as a quality and incredible stand-in for, for Calvin Phillips. And, you know, the fact that there the still isn't a, a sort of like-for-like player to replace Phillips at Leeds, but McCalmont is out on loan at Oldham, perhaps tells you that at the moment he's, he's not really in the picture. But if, like Chelsea, for example, or, or other clubs, you had scores of players who were out on loan, I think the value of a loans manager would be would be much higher. It's not to say that it's it's not a good thing for Leeds to have, but I think the pressure of that job would be completely different. Is it fair to say that Bielsa has quite, uh, I don't want to say rules with an iron fist, but it's the only phrase that comes to mind at the minute, but he has a great deal of influence over the structure of the football department. I know he works with Victor Orta and he's ultimately the boss, but it's very much cast in his image. Oh, massively, yeah. So similar style of play from top to bottom, first team down through the academy, which is not to say that at under 10s or under 11s you can necessarily play in exactly the same way, but it's kind of the same principles and the same the same ideas. And absolutely, I mean, anybody who goes on loan, a deal like that is going to be sanctioned by Bielsa or not in the same way that he's always going to have final say on, on transfers and when it comes to scouting and, and looking for players, they are always going to look for players who have the attributes he wants and the attributes that will let them fit into his team. And 100%, I mean, his, his authority at Thorpe Arch is absolute and has been from the start. And I don't think you'll you'll ever see that weaken until the, the day when he goes. Do you see players going out on loan then generally as more of a shop window as a rather than a case of proving themselves? I, I think that's probably a fair assessment or at least a chance of games for players who really have no chance of games at, at Leeds. I mean, if if Bielsa thought that Gotts or McCalmont were going to be useful at some stage this season, they they wouldn't be elsewhere. They they would be in the building. And I think Gotts has got, as an example, 12 months left on, on his contract. And it, it might be that this summer is a time for him. You know, it's the time to go and, and time to, to find somebody else to play. And the old problem with 23s is not everybody who comes through the 23s can go on to be a first-team player at, at the club they're with and and there clearly is a very very strong crop there um, and and a lot of players who you look at and think should be potentially good enough to play in the Premier League if if they carry on developing like this. But if you already have good players there and and if you know in in the team and if Leeds go out this summer and spend more and and strengthen in key areas, then it makes it more difficult again. And you tend to see across the the Premier League there aren't that many sides that are littered with academy products at all and um, there's a lot of money spent on players there are a lot of clubs who who do recruit heavily and it's a it's a bit of a balance but you will find that the the very best will come through the the rest will move on hi lads it's Ant from leeds just a quick question on rodrigo there seems to be a lot of rumors flying around at the minute on whether or not he's unhappy at the club or i know he's been unlucky with coronavirus and you know in and out of the team each week is there any truth in him going back to spain in the summer and is looking at replacing him with anyone Hi, Phil. What's your thoughts on the rumours that Rodrigo wanted to leave the club? 
There was an interview with Rodrigo NAS, um, Spanish newspaper, Spanish website, um, about two or three weeks ago, and he was asked this specifically, are you, you happy at Leeds? To which he gave a, an unequivocal yes. And, and certainly when I've spoken to Leeds about him, they, they've always given the impression that he's settled pretty well or, or settled as well as you can in, in the circumstances. This is not because of the pandemic and travel restrictions. This is not an easy time to move countries, you know, not easy time to, to jump from one league to another and to go from, say, Spain to England because it's difficult for your family to visit you. It's, it's difficult for you to stay in touch with them and so on. I know that one of the frustrations he's having at the moment is the fact that he he wasn't in the last Spain squad and, and that will obviously cast doubt over whether he's going to make the Euros in the summer and, and the announcement on that will, will come around soon enough. But it's been difficult for him this season. I, I asked Bielsa about him in the last press conference because he'd been... He'd been substituted against Chelsea after coming off the bench, and that was that was deliberate. I think that there was no expectation that he would play much more than forty-five minutes in that game, and, and probably not even that. And Bielsa didn't want to to push him too far, but he has had injuries. He has had COVID. It, it's meant that it's never really got going for him properly, and the, the little bursts of talent we've seen from him, and it's definitely there. I mean, he, he looks like a a quality player, but the the little bursts of talent have, have never been sustained. You know, that, that impact hasn't been sustained because it's felt like he's he's in and out of the team. And Bielsa made that point. You know, he said that he's unlike somebody like Calvin Phillips, who is injured, but then is back and seems to be able to return to training and come straight back into the side. Bielsa was kind of indicating that, that Rodrigo always needs a little bit more time. He's someone who takes it a bit longer to, to get up to, to speed. So it's meant that he's he's never been able to get into a proper rhythm. But Bielsa did say, you know, from his point of view, uh, he thinks Rodrigo is a top quality forward, very, very high class striker, and um, well, number 10 as, as he has been this season. I mean, I think in Bielsa's mind, he's he's very much part of the plans. And at this stage, there's been nothing concrete to indicate that Be- that Rodrigo is agitating to go. We spoke about this on our podcast as well. I think he's it's worth giving him a second year in Bielsa. We've, we've seen that most players improve in the second year. If you look back at, some people who are now crucial to the team, people, even people like Stuart Dallas weren't... Harrison, yeah. They've all improved after a year and as I said, it's been very fragmented for him and let's see how it goes. It'd be, well, it'd be hard to, if he did leave, it'd be hard to kind of view it as a disaster because he's never been integrated as part of our team. I think he's got potential to be, to be very good for us. Where, where does he fit though? Where does he fit, Phil? Well, in Bielsa's mind, he seems to fit as a player in behind Bamford. He's had the odd opportunity as a, as a nine and up front, but he was fairly flexible and versatile at Valencia but in the main they did play him up front you know he, he was a he was a centre forward but Bamford scoring too many goals too many assists too influential he's not going to knock him out of the team at the moment I think I, I would certainly be trying to give him a second season and I think if you aren't there has to be a very very good reason not to either you concede that it just has been the wrong player to sign and it isn't going to work and he doesn't really fit or you know as, as we've just been talking about he isn't happy and he wants to go and, and he decides that, that he wants to leave. I think if if nobody feels like that, then absolutely you you hope that you put him through pre-season and you know his, his performances elevate. But he also did mention that. He did say, you know, when he came in last summer, he'd missed a little bit of what we did. You know, he, he wasn't able to go right the way through the summer. So he was kind of playing catch up in, in that sense as well. And I mean, we we've seen before that full pre seasons do very good things for for players at Leeds. So I still feel like that is a good signing. I still feel like that should be a signing that makes a a big impact. I don't think it's made anything like as big an impact as it should have done this season. But I think there've been factors for that. Hi Phil and the guys. What do you think the best win this season is? And on top of that, 
What's the best win since you've been covering Leeds United? Thank you. Match done together. Best win since covering Leeds United would be Swansea away last season. I mean, there've been others that kind of compare. So the the win at Old Trafford, obviously the, the Beckford goal, the win against Bristol Rovers that that took leads up and actually some others um, under Bielsa I mean his first game against Stoke was one of those kind of mesmerising staggering days where you all walked out thinking Jesus Christ but Swansea away was just off the scale and um, the timing of the goal and Hernandez scoring it and what you knew it was going to do and, and what it meant was um, was pretty pretty incomparable best win this season I've been minded for a long time to say Everton away and I still think that that's borderline borderline right Bielsa thinks Aston Villa away was the, the best of them um, but the more I think about the win down at Leicester, that was really, really impressive. And I know that they, they didn't have Jamie Vardy, he'd had um, hernia surgery. But um, conceding first and then responding in the way they, they did. And, and also, I, I thought the intelligence of the performance in the second half and the, the period where Leicester were on top, not to take stupid risks, not to take gambles, just to stay in the game and to be sensible um, with, their, with their shape and, and everything else. And then to pick Leicester off as impressively as they did in, in the closing stages was really high-level stuff. And I think you'd be hard-pushed to say there's been a better one than that. I'd go along with that as well. They're a genuinely quality side of Leicester and they will finish in the, certainly the top four or five this season. So to actually prove ourselves against them, I think that was... And it wasn't a lucky performance either. It wasn't like we, we scraped some goals from lucky breaks or set pieces or anything. We went toe-to-toe with them and we, we did well. I will say our best win this season is yet to come. Oh, well, we're we're all waiting for a big hit, aren't we? And you know, you could class Leicester as a fairly big hit because, like Michael says, I, I think they will qualify for the Champions League. But if it's going to come, it's going to have to come in this bunch of three, isn't it? City, Man United, and and Liverpool. That's where um, that's where we'll be looking for it. Hi lads, it's Max from London here. In response to Dallas's form this year, and also the famous team of Michael Brown's chant, which Leeds past and present player would you have a team of eleven? Goodness, that's a great question. Terrific question. Um, Stuart Dallas has covered most positions apart from goalkeeper this season, so... Yes, probably do okay there as well. I'd be very tempted to go for Milner, I think. Uh, if if we're talking about the squad now, I think a peak Matthias Cleek, 11 of him across the team would, would be fantastic. But looking back over the years, yeah, I think I think Milner would be the one. Milner would be a good shout. I think Gary Speed as well would do a good job for you yeah. across the pitch, really good in the air. So you're not you're not too weak in the centre of defence. Where I think that's where Milner might let you down a little bit, trying to get overrun on set pieces and things. Whereas I think Speak would probably do a do a job everywhere. Hi lads, Mike from Sarasota, Florida. Here, Phil, with the link up with the 49ers, do you foresee maybe a US tour, preseason tour, or even postseason tour on the books? Obviously, post COVID world. I know the ranks of US fans are growing steadily and uh, it's something that I'm desperately wanting. So what do you think? It's possible, but from what I understand, they do have foreign options. The, the difficulty for the supporters this year is going to be that travelling over the summer might be nigh on impossible. So if, if they are abroad, unfortunately, unlike Australia, it will be extremely difficult for people to go. Obviously, there will be sports based over in America and, and other parts of the world. But again, it, it's hard for us to say what the restrictions in, in whichever country they go to will be but now that they're a Premier League side and obviously they weren't a Premier League side when they went to Australia but they still had a they were still a very very big draw but now that they're in this division they, they do fall into the, the pool of clubs who are going to be attractive to anybody who's trying to set up an, an international tournament 
I'd feel a lot more comfortable with, say, San Francisco and the West Coast of America than, say, Myanmar, given what's been happening there recently. Yes, absolutely. Um, although I don't think COVID has been perfectly managed in the States either. So, it, it, you know, they'd have to be careful with, with whatever decision they made. But they're very used to existing in a bubble and, and being being cautious when it comes to trying to, to avoid the virus as, as best they can. I mean, there was the mention of a postseason tour there. That is that 100% be off the cards, that. I mean, they've got the Euros coming up aside from anything else but if ever players have needed a break it's going to be June of this year I'm just picturing them telling Matthias Click that he's going off to America to do some <laughs> extra games <laughs> before flying back to, to join up with Poland yeah no I mean it's not just at Leeds either uh, I think everybody at every level is feeling the need for a rest Hello lads hope you're all keeping well Phil I was just wondering if you could give us an insight into the match day and what that looks like for journalists I've always wondered what it would be like um, and if and how that's changed firstly due to Covid and secondly now, because Leeds are in the Premier League. Cheers. Champagne, limousines, what's it like? Very much that, yes. Um, I mean, there was a long period where in the press room at Leeds you got tea and coffee and that was it. But up until COVID struck, they were they could serve up some pretty nice food. Um, you were always guaranteed something. And, and the other clubs you went to from time to time, like Leicester and Manchester City, it did feel like being treated by royalty with roast dinners and picking mechs and free bars and cheese boards and and everything else. It, was it? Was it? it sorry, was it the Emirates that have got the, the Hagen Dars fridge or something like that? At the Emirates, they had Ben and Jerry's, and when we when we went uh, last season for the FA Cup, they had a huge array of cakes, and you could tell who was from Leeds because all of us were standing around staring at them, and everybody else was saying, "Oh, we get this every week, like a, like, we- like a wedding when people <laughs> are queuing up for the buffet." <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, exactly that. And it feels to me as if um, at Premier League level, it, there's a bit of one-upmanship, and and the the standard of press rooms has increased constantly, or the standard of the food that you get has increased constantly because as other places get better, clubs want to to try and try and keep up. I mean on, on a typical Saturday, I, I used to for a three o'clock kickoff, I used to get down to the ground about twelve ish and sit and watch part of the live game that was always on on Sky and you'd have a bit to eat. And then when I was at the evening post you'd start doing your online stuff, the blogs and tweets and, and all sorts. It's slightly different with the athletic because obviously our coverage is different to what I used to do at the evening post. COVID has changed everything completely. I mean for one thing you now get into stadiums fairly late. Most of them, or some of them, restrict you to an hour and a half before kickoff, and and will tough you out quite quickly afterwards as well because of the concerns about the virus and the, and the attempts to to keep everybody distant. So we are not really using press rooms anywhere. We're kind of straight into the press box and then straight out afterwards. And obviously, the well, I mean one the, one of the very very few good things about no crowds is that it's incredibly easy to park now around. Stadiums, which is not the case normally. Normally, you're you're fighting for spaces, and you've you've got to kind of plan plan ahead. But there is literally nobody anywhere. You know, I I I felt it most down at Aston Villa. I don't know why particularly, but we got there for that Friday night game and drove into a car park that was borderline empty, parked up, and it was it was dark. There was just nobody around. You know, the streets were completely empty, and and it's become a little bit difficult to get your head into the games until they start because every game feels the same. You know, even when you have Manchester United and Liverpool turning up to Ellen Road. You know those are, are the teams that are coming, but there's nothing outside the ground to suggest that there's a game even on. And it does feel a little bit like walking into the same match over and over again. Uh, so it's changed things quite significantly. We still sit in the same places. We still fundamentally do the same things. But obviously now press conferences are all on Zoom rather than face-to-face. I haven't done a press conference at Thorpe Arch for 13 months. We haven't done a press conference with Bielsa face to face at any stage since the the last the last shutdown, um, and it's going to be like that for a while longer, I think. And you've not got to 
all of the away games this year either, have you? No, I mean, with the Athletic, it's not to say that we would have done anyway because um, some places do restrict you to one one seat per outlet. Uh, so there would have been places where we would have had an issue regardless. Um, but it has definitely trimmed down the number of journalists who are able to to travel. And that's been true of Leeds as, as much as, as anywhere else. With regards to the Zoom press conferences, do you think the press departments prefer that because they can just disconnect? Oh, sorry, we're having connection problems when difficult questions start coming in. It does make you wonder. And I do question when or if we're going to go back to face-to-face press conferences or if it might suit clubs in, as a whole more to avoid journalists being at the training ground, whether they, they see it as, as more efficient. We'll, we'll find out as we go. But I think as the, as the easing comes and crowds come back in and training grounds become a, a, a bit more open, I don't expect us to be first in line to be able to do what we were doing before. I think we'll be quite far down the list. Without necessarily betraying anyone here, what is the best uh, Zoom mishap you've had so far? Oh, yes. There was an incident um, with Bielsa earlier in the season when a certain TV channel's weather forecast started playing. As he was speaking, they'd they'd evidently logged in and forgotten to mute. Um, So we found out that it was going to be nice and warm that afternoon and also sunny the following day. So if he was planning to bring his, um, his waterproofs in for training on the Friday morning, he would have been fine. But the thing about Bielsa, and, and you find not just with Leeds Zoom, but with everybody's Zoom calls, there are issues from time to time. The connection isn't great or something happens. People can't unmute. They're not able to to ask the questions. Biel- and this this happened at Wolves. Bielsa was kind of left hanging because none of us could get onto the call and, and there was an issue with the, the connectivity. And Bielsa is unbelievably patient and incredibly good at being able to just sit there and sit there and sit there and to wait for it to start up again. You know, there's never any suggestion that he's going to say, do you know what, I'm not having this, I'm going. And he just gets up and leaves. He sits and he sits and he sits and eventually we all get there in the end. But yes, the the weather forecast was a particular highlight. That wraps up the Q&A for this one. We will do it again soon. And sorry if we didn't play your question this time. We did get loads and loads. So look out for that. A future Q&A with Phil Hay. Back in action at Ellen Road on Saturday for the visit of Paul Heckingbottom's Sheffield United side. And I'm really looking forward to this after what has been a challenging week and a half trying to get excited about international football. I thought you were going to say after a challenging season for Sheffield United, which is what it's been down there. There's a a piece coming this week I've done with Richard Sutcliffe, a Sheffield United writer, which is the pair of us discussing why it's gone so well here, why it's gone so badly wrong there, how it is that Sheffield United have gone from being an, an example of what a promoted club should try to do last season to being an example of what a club should absolutely not do in the Premier League this season. And, and it, it flowed into a discussion, which I think is pretty relevant, about second season syndrome and, and what Leeds have to do to ensure that next season, you know, I, I would not expect them to, to have anything like the, the disaster that, that Sheffield United have had under Chris Wilder, but to make sure that they go forwards rather than backwards and, and to try and make sure that, that they don't stagnate. And I think there'll be an argument that Leeds are a bigger club than Sheffield United, that a bigger fan base, potentially more power commercially and and therefore have a natural advantage. But I think it has been proven at Bramall Lane that if you don't get it right and if you don't keep working on your squad, if you don't keep improving, if you don't get your recruitment right and you don't do do the necessary things to your team when when you have to, and, and essentially if you find yourself standing still, then you get into trouble very, very quickly. And my expectation of this fixture at the start of the season was that by the time we reached it, Leeds would be in a pretty comfortable mid-table area. I don't know whether I thought they'd be quite this high up the table, but I thought it'd be, they'd be there or thereabouts. 
I expected Sheffield United to be further down than they had been um, in the final table last season. But in no way did I expect them to be bottom of the league with, with 14 points. It's been staggering the decline. It is a warning from the future, isn't it, though? Very much so. You've got to be really careful not to uh, to repeat what they've done. Mind you, I don't think in any world we would have spent, what, 45, 50 million quid on Brewster and, uh, and McBurney. That's the point, though, isn't it? When the, the transfer window comes round, it does sound like Leeds will have a decent budget again. And in every window, you, you need to get it right. And I, I do still feel that they did get it right in the last window, even though Llorente hasn't been able to play much and even though uh, Rodrigo hasn't played as much as he would have wanted to and Cox obviously had his knee injury as well. I still think those are three very, very good international players and Rafinha has, has clearly been absolute dynamite and great, great signing at, at £17 million. But that's what you have to do again. That's how you improve your squad. That's how your squad gets better by hitting the bullseye in the transfer market and making sure that the money you spend has a positive effect and has a positive effect on the positions where you genuinely need strengthening. So if Leeds do get out and sign a very good quality left-back um, in the next window, I think they're targeting exactly the position that looks like it, it really needs attention. And, and if they find cover for Phillips and if they get somebody who can play further forward in midfield, then you feel as if they're consciously addressing the parts of the team that can get better um, and, and the areas of the squad that, that could be deeper. And I'd like to think they'll do that. They've had plenty of time to plan for it, but it is a warning because it, they're glaring, glaring example, Sheffield United, of how quickly it can go wrong. To go back to the survey we were talking about at the start, on there, nearly 43% of Sheffield United fans said they're happy with the transfer business, which I find bizarre, really, given the, the amount of money wasted on, well, seemingly wasted so far anyway, on strikers. We did a, a piece early in the season where we spoke to a lot of agents anonymously and we asked them to to talk about the best deals, the worst deals, and and also to give some view on which teams they thought would, who they thought would win the league, which teams they thought would go down. And one of the people I spoke to said Sheffield United will finish bottom three because they're not they're not a good team and they they haven't improved enough. At least they're not a good team sustainably. They haven't improved enough and they're going to run into trouble. And the same person also said that in his opinion, the worst deal of the window was Ryan Brewster for in some places put down as 80 million and other players 22 million something in, in that ballpark but a huge amount of cash you know and, and more than somebody like Rafinha and he was saying this the season had started and Sheffield United were already in, in a bit of trouble and, and he said they're spending a huge amount of money on a player who's pretty unproven at Premier League level he's going to a club who already seem as if they're going to have difficulty getting themselves going and are, are struggling to get points on the board and I don't see the sense of it and I think further down the line now you see the sense of it even less and that is definitely what you have to try and stay clear of is is deals that cost you a lot of money and and do not pay off because you can't afford that. I mentioned on the Square Ball podcast that I would rather be facing a Paul Heckingbottom Sheffield United than a Chris Wilder one and I'm fully aware of the capability of that to come back and bite me on the backside. However, on the evidence so far, you know, there's not even been a new manager bounce. They got absolutely trounced at Leicester. Is that a club that's given up? Possibly. I mean, if I think back to Heckenbottom's time at, at Leeds, there wasn't much of a new manager bounce with him here either. It, it, was, it wasn't even a slow burn. It just never seemed to, to catch light. I agree with you about Wilder. And if I think back to the game at Bramall Lane in the first month of the season, it was very, very tight. It was very close. I thought Leeds were worth the win. I thought Leeds had the better of the second half. But there were key moments in that. Huge save from Melier, um in the first half when it was goalless. Big chance towards the end as well. I think in the end, Wilder and Bielsa both kind of agreed that it could have gone either way. And as I say, I, I thought it was the right result on the day. 
But it brings me on to something I've thought about Sheffield United all the way through, which is that I don't think they've actually been dreadful. I don't think they've been as shocking as the, the league position makes them look. They deserve to go down without any question. But I think West Brom in December looked a worse side than Sheffield United did. I think one of the problems for Sheffield United was that they kept coming out on the wrong side of narrow games initially. And then when you find that you're adrift and you find that you've got ground to make up, the, the pressure rises, people lose confidence and, and it does have a, a very, very big impact. But if you go through the, the early results, lost 1-0 to Villa, lost 1-0 to Leeds, lost 2-1 away at Arsenal, lost 2-1 away at Liverpool, 1-0 to Manchester City, 1-0 to West Ham, lost 1-0 at, at West Brom. And it's not to say that they were playing impressively well in those games, but those are a lot of matches that could have led to the odd win here or there and could have had them... 17th rather than a mile adrift in, in 20th. I think they will feel like they've properly shot themselves in the foot this season. Does go to show it's a results business though, doesn't it? And I've put out a tongue-in-cheek tweet before saying it's amazing how Sheffield United keep losing by the odd goal, but if you keep doing that, then you do deserve to go down. Of course you do, yeah. No, you do. And and you can't have 14 points at the bottom of the table and say that you've been, you've been unlucky. And that, I think, was what came to weigh on Wilder and the players eventually was that the, the constant sort of narrative of this will turn, this will turn, you know, we'll pick up if we keep playing like this. You get to a stage of the season where it isn't turning and it clearly isn't going to. And even if it does, the results you need are so unlikely that there's there's not much chance of you of you getting out of trouble. That's been true of West Brom as well. And, and both of those two have, have effectively gone. The, the difference for Fulham is that they did manage to click their fingers a bit at the very point where they looked like getting cut adrift as well. So they are still still in the mix but no it's 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 been dismal and I did feel that Wilder would go eventually it seemed impossible from from my point of view that a manager could lose that many games and and have that run of form and still retain the confidence of the club or the full confidence of the dressing room it didn't seem like the players were trying to rush him out the door but I think the atmosphere becomes so negative and and so destructive that it's it's almost there's almost no option but to make a change. But then you look at the way Norwich finished last season, I guess, and the way they've bounced into into the championship and, and are going to come straight out of it. And it, it feels like Sheffield United in completely ripping up what they were doing. It feels to me like they've almost made themselves more likely to do a Sunderland than a, do a Norwich next season. And they, they might just drop straight through again if they're not completely careful with it. And, and they, they don't manage to keep some kind of structure there. There is a difference though, which was that Norwich came up and went straight back down and they seem pretty realistic about what the prospects are ever going to be in the, the Premier League. They they talk quite openly about the fact that that actually yo-yoing can almost work for them and, and could be could be good for them longer term in, in the way that it was for, for Burnley a, a few years back. With Chris Wilder, you had this really impressive first season where it looked like they might actually get into Europe and they were they were in, in that position for a long, long time swerving really dramatically in a sort of horrible gear change to the point where they can barely barely win a game and it becomes hard to be totally rational about that it becomes all I think it becomes now and impossible to sit back and say look this doesn't matter we don't need to worry about this because he'll still be the right man for us in the championship I think it causes division and it, it fractures relationships and it seems clear to me that the relationship between him and the ownership at, at Bramall Lane was was broken by the end and that's the difference, isn't it? It's at boardroom level where Norwich, even if it sits a bit ill with us, that they were, would be prepared to accept relegation. As long as they're all on the same hymn sheet, then okay, fine, that's their strategy. Might work for them. Doesn't feel like Sheffield United are at all. Is the point, I think. And and it 
makes the point as well that you need to constantly cultivate relationships, even the best of them. So even at Leeds, where there's this seems to be this very, very good understanding between Bielsa and Arthur and the board, Kinnear and, and Radrazani, everybody seems happy with what's going on. You can't take the risk of thinking that it's always going to be like that. You can't take the risk of thinking that you don't need to manage these relationships regardless. And you can't be blindsided by them suddenly breaking down. And, and it does feel that whereas Wilder's position was rock solid at Bramall Lane for so long, at the point at which it looked like he was going to go, there just didn't seem to be any lasting interaction or, or effective interaction between him and Prince Abdullah, the, the owner or the board. It, it felt as if they were constantly going in different directions. And once that happens, as we've seen with Wilder, there really is no way back. Well, the lesser spotted Saturday three o'clock kickoff we've got this weekend, which is amazing. Yes. How's it going to go? What do we expect from this game? You would think that this is an opportunity for Leeds to win and to win fairly handsomely. Sheffield United actually played better away at Chelsea in the FA Cup than they had at Leicester, where you know that was a. It was a couple of days after Wilder had gone, but it was also a couple of days after that. You know, it was like creeping death with Wilder, wasn't it? Everybody knew he'd left. Everybody knew that there was a partner of ways. Sheffield United took forever to announce it. Heckingbottom needed COVID tests. He was on the 23s manager there, manager there. So in order to to take charge at Leicester, he was very late on the scene. But I think it did speak that result of a squad who've completely lost everything, haven't they? They're, they're, they're just killing these games now to, to get themselves out of the season and into the summer. And you would like to think that if, if Leeds play well at the weekend, then they will, they will win this and, and win it fairly handsomely. Any reason why Leeds shouldn't go into this with confidence, Michael? <laughs> no. <laughs> Strange to say. We just need to win this, don't we? And hopefully, probably, the, well, seems likely it'll be the last we ever see of Paul Hackingbottom. So um, thanks for your work that you did, <laughs> such as it was. Well, I don't know how I would describe it particularly, but um, you were here for a time, weren't you? So yeah. thanks for that. <laughs> I think the best thing that can be said about Hackingbottom, and I will say again that when he came in, he had a reputation as a good coach and he'd, he'd done good things at Barnsley, certainly up until the point where they started selling anybody of, of any value. They'd been a, a really competitive team and, and had beaten Monks, Leeds down at, at Oakwell. But it was the wrong appointment. It didn't work. Um, he didn't make any impact on the dressing room. I, I think it would be going some to say it was entirely his fault. There were, there were big problems with discipline and, and everything else at Ellen Road. But the one really positive impact that he had, and, and also Thomas Christensen, was in making Alter and Radrazani realise that although they were trying to run a, a medium-term strategy, you couldn't do that at a club like Leeds while floating around in 13th, 14th, 15th place. You had to be seen to be competing for promotion. And the penny really did drop that the, the most important appointment they were going to make was the head coach. And even if it involved breaking the budget slightly or breaking the budget in quite a big way, they needed to go big there. You know, They needed to take a gamble and they needed to be brave. And the call was, was made to Bielsa and the decision to get rid of Heckingbottom, it, it was ruthless, you know, it, it was ruthless as, as these decisions often are in football, but it, it was right and it's been vindicated a hundred times over. And as um, Gordon Strachan said at the end of uh, one of the famous VHS tapes, fortune favours the brave and Leeds were brave in going for Bielsa and it's paid huge, huge dividends. It has and... The Christensen Heckenbottom season seems like a lifetime ago now. It feels like a completely different era of the club, and and somehow Bielsa's football has been so good and so engaging that it's made a, a three year period feel like a, a decade. You know, it's made it feel like a a bit of a bit of a dynasty with with hopefully more to come. It's been very enjoyable. Pickers one to watch. Then I assume we're all going for for a home win because it should be by rights. Uh, yes, yeah, home win. Yep. 
and one to watch then, the thing to watch out for? Well, it's it's got to be Heckenbottom, hasn't it? And and to see whether or not he can get a song out of these players or, or whether they are just going to creep through to the end of the season, dropping points, losing games, going out with a, with a whimper. As I say, I, I, I'm not expecting a huge amount uh, from them this weekend, but you're, you're always there to be surprised. You can get in touch with the show at The Phil Hay Show on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Athletic for that special price, three ninety nine a month for six months, which is 40% off the full price of a sub. In-depth analysis features from the best football writers around and you can get all these podcasts ad-free. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for that discount. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next time. The Phil Hay Show.